can't be neutral on the moving train I told y'all before You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you Who was your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught How do you know what they was taught was correct? And that was Vinnie Paz with an excerpt from Writings on Disobedience and Democracy. Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can send me a message at youcan'tbeneutral.com. You'll also find some links there to make a donation, and you will find all the back episodes at youcan'tbeneutral.com as well. This is the second episode covering the executive summary of the California Reparations Report. This is part two of the executive summary, International Principles of Reparation and Examples of Reparative Efforts. Section 14, International Reparations Framework. AB 3121, which is the legislation that initiated this task force, requires the recommendations from the reparations task force to, quote, comport with international standards of remedy for wrongs and injuries caused by the state that include full reparations and special measures as understood by various relevant international protocols, laws, and findings. The United Nations Principles on Reparation set forth a legal framework for providing full and effective reparations to victims of gross violations of international human rights law and serious violations of international humanitarian law. The framework takes an expansive view of what it means to be a victim. The framework does not define the violations it covers, but the International Commission of Jurists has explained that they are the, quote, types of violations that affect in qualitative and quantitative terms the most basic rights of human beings, notably the right to life and the right to physical and moral integrity of the human person. Examples include genocide, slavery and slave trade, murder and forced disappearances, torture or other cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment, and systematic racial discrimination. The Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide separately defines genocide. According to the international legal framework established by the United Nations Principles on Reparation, a full and effective reparations program must include all of the following. 1. Restitution 2. Compensation 3. Rehabilitation 4. Satisfaction and five guarantees of non-repetition. The task force has sought to ensure that each of these components is addressed in its recommendations to the legislature in this report and reiterates to the legislature that recommendations addressing each component would need to be implemented in order to achieve reparations plan that complies with the international standard for reparations. Restitution. Quote, 
Restitution should, whenever possible, restore the victim to the original situation before the gross violations of international human rights law or serious violations of international humanitarian law occurred. Restitution includes, as appropriate, restoration of liberty, enjoyment of human rights, identity, family life, and citizenship, return to one's place of residence, restoration of employment, and return of property. According to the International Commission of Jurists, ICJ, interpretation of the UN Principles on Reparation, where the state can return a victim to the status quo, the state has, quote, an obligation to ensure measures for its restoration. However, even though restitution is considered the primary form of reparation, the ICJ acknowledges that, quote, in practice, restitution is the least frequent because it is mostly impossible to completely return a victim to the situation they were in before the violation, especially because of the moral damage caused to victims and their relatives. So the ICJ specifies that where complete restitution is not possible, as will often be the case, the state must, quote, take measures to achieve a status as approximate as possible. In situations where even this is not feasible, quote, the state has to provide compensation covering the damage arisen from the loss of the status quo ante. In order to satisfy this component of the international standards for an effective reparations program, the task force offers recommendations to the legislature in part four of this report regarding how to appropriately calculate restitution for the whole class of individuals determined to be eligible for reparations. Compensation. Compensation should be provided for any economically accessible damage as appropriate and proportional to the gravity of the violation and the circumstances of each case, resulting from gross violations of international human rights law and serious violations of international humanitarian law, such as a. Physical or mental harm. b. Lost opportunities including employment, education, and social benefits. c. Material damages and loss of earnings, including loss of earning potential. D. Moral damage. E. Costs required for legal or expert assistance, medicine and medical services, in psychological and social services. According to the ICJ's interpretation of the UN Principles on Reparation, compensation is to be understood, quote, as a specific form of reparation seeking to provide economic or monetary awards for certain losses, be they of material or immaterial, of pecuniary or non-pecuniary nature. The ICJ highlights how compensation has been awarded by claims commissions for claims of, quote, material and immaterial damage, and especially those involving wrongful death or deprivation of liberty. The United Nations has recognized a right to compensation, quote, even where it is not explicitly mentioned in particular treaty, and the Human Rights Committee recommends as a matter of practice that states should award compensation. The basis for this recommendation comes from Article 2.3a of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. International jurisprudence divides compensation into material damages and moral damages. Material damages include, among other types, loss of actual or future earnings, loss of movable and immovable property, and legal costs. 
moral damages include physical and mental harm. In order to satisfy this component of the international standards for an effective reparations program, the task force offers recommendations to the legislature in part four of this report regarding how to appropriately compensate those who are able to demonstrate that they have suffered specific compensable injuries. Rehabilitation. Rehabilitation should include medical and psychological care as well as legal and social services. According to the ICJ's interpretation of the UN principles on reparation, quote, victims are entitled to rehabilitation of their dignity, their social situation, and their legal situation, and their vocational situation. The ICJ also highlighted the Convention Against Torture's assessment on what constitutes rehabilitation. Accordingly, quote, rehabilitation must be specific to the victim based on an independent, holistic, and professional evaluation of the individual's needs and ensure that the victim participates in the choice of service providers. Furthermore, the obligation to provide the means for as full rehabilitation as possible may not be postponed and does not depend on the available resources of the state. Finally, rehabilitation, quote, should include a wide range of interdisciplinary services such as medical and psychological care, as well as legal and social services, community and family-oriented assistance and services, vocational training and education, and rectification of criminal records or invalidation of unlawful convictions. In order to satisfy this component of the international standards for an effective reparations program, Task Force offers recommendations to the legislature in Part 5 of this report regarding a wide variety of statutory and regulatory changes that the legislature should enact in order to support rehabilitation of those eligible for the recommended programs. Satisfaction Under the UN Principles on Reparation, satisfaction should include where applicable any or all of the following. A effective measures aimed at the cessation of continuing violations. B. Verification of the facts and full and public disclosure of the truth to the extent that such disclosure does not cause further harm or threaten the safety and interests of the victim, the victim's relatives, witnesses, or persons who have intervened to assist the victim or prevent the occurrence of further violations. C. The search for the whereabouts of the disappeared, for the identities of the children abducted, and for the bodies of those killed, and assistance in the recovery, identification and reburial of the bodies in accordance with the expressed or presumed wish of the victims, or the cultural practices of the families and communities. D. An official declaration or judicial decision restoring the dignity, the reputation, and the rights of the victim, and of persons closely connected with the victim. E. Public apology, including acknowledgement of the facts and acceptance of responsibility. F. Judicial and administrative sanctions against persons liable for the violations. G. Commemorations and tributes to the victims. H. Inclusion of an accurate account of the violations that occurred in international human rights law and international humanitarian law training and education materials at all levels. According to the ICJ's interpretation of the UN principles on reparation, satisfaction is a non-financial form of reparation 
for moral damage or damage to the dignity or reputation that has been recognized by the International Court of Justice. Satisfaction can take the form of a condemnatory judgment or the acknowledgement of truth, as well as the acknowledgement of responsibility and fault. The ICJ also held that satisfaction includes, quote, the punishment of the authors of the violation. Furthermore, quote, the UN updated principles on impunity recommend that the final report of truth commissions be made public in full. This is supported by the UN Human Rights Commission resolution on impunity, which recognizes that, quote, for the victims of human rights violations, public knowledge of their suffering and the truth about the perpetrators, including their accomplices of these violations, are essential steps towards rehabilitation and reconciliation. Another important factor for satisfaction is a, quote, public apology and public commemoration. A public apology helps in restoring the honor, reputation, or dignity of a victim. The public commemoration is particularly important in cases of violations of the rights of groups or a high number of persons, sometimes not individually identified, or in cases of violations that occurred a long time in the past. A public commemoration, quote, in these cases, has a symbolic value and constitutes a measure of reparation for current but also future generations. In order to satisfy this component of the international standards for an effective reparations program, the task force offers recommendations to the legislature in Part 3 of this report regarding the manner and scope of a formal apology, and in Part 5 of this report regarding a variety of statutory and regulatory changes that should be enacted by the legislature to achieve satisfaction. These recommendations are based on the fulsome accounting in Part 1 of this report, and that addresses the needs for a full and public disclosure of the truth. Additionally, Part 7 of this report serves as a first step towards a more comprehensive program of a full and public disclosure of the truth by bringing forward data and elevating the stories regarding the harms suffered by the community. Part 8 of this report offers recommendations to the legislature that would ensure the public is educated about and steps needed to collectively redress the harms. And finally, Part 9 of this report offers a detailed accounting of the legal methods used to perpetuate a system of unequal justice, which the task force recommends the legislature dismantle in order to ensure satisfaction. Guarantees of Non-Repetition Under the UN Principles on Reparation, guarantees of non-repetition should include, where applicable, any or all of the following measures. A. Ensuring effective civilian control of military and security forces. B. Ensuring that all civilian and military proceedings abide by international standards of due process, fairness, and impartiality. C. Strengthening the independence of the judiciary. D. Protecting persons in the legal, medical, and healthcare professions, the media and other related professions, and human rights defenders. E. Providing on a priority and continued basis human rights and international humanitarian law education to all sectors of society and training for law enforcement officials as well as military and security forces. F. 
promoting the observance of codes of conduct and ethical norms, in particular international standards by public servants, including law enforcement, correctional, media, medical, psychological, social service, and military personnel, as well as by economic enterprises. G. Promoting mechanisms for preventing and monitoring social conflicts and their resolution. H. Reviewing and reforming laws contributing to or allowing gross violations of international human rights law and serious violations of international humanitarian law. According to the ICJ's interpretation of the UN Principles on Reparation, the guarantee of non-repetition derives from a general international law. A guarantee of non-repetition is an aspect of restoration and repair of the legal relationship affected by the breach. According to the International Law Commission, quote, assurances and guarantees are concerned with the restoration of confidence in a continuing relationship. A guarantee of non-repetition overlaps with international human rights law because states have a duty to prevent human rights violations. A guarantee of non-repetition is required expressly as part of the legal consequences of a state's decisions or judgments. This express requirement is supported by the UN Commission on Human Rights, the Human Rights Committee, the Inter-American Court and Commission on Human Rights, the Committee of Ministers and Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, and the African Commission on Human and People's Rights. Another measure that falls under the guarantee of non-repetition is, quote, the necessity to remove officials implicated in gross human rights violations from office. Finally, a guarantee of non-repetition can and often must involve structural changes that must be achieved through legislative measures to ensure that the violations cannot ever happen again. While the UN principles on reparation are primarily based on the notion of government responsibility, the negotiators also reached a consensus that, quote, non-state actors are to be held responsible for their policies and practices, allowing victims to seek redress and reparation on the basis of legal liability and human solidarity, and not just on the basis of state responsibility. Principle 3C provides for equal and effective access to justice, irrespective of who may ultimately be the bearer of responsibility for the violation. Additionally, Principle 15 states, quote, In cases where a person, a legal person, or other entity is found liable for reparation to a victim, such parties should provide reparation to the victim or compensate the state if the state has already provided reparation to the victim. According to the international legal framework laid out by the UN Principles on Reparation, victims of gross violations of international human rights law and serious violations of international humanitarian law should be provided with full and effective reparations. Victims are, quote, persons who individually or collectively suffered harm, including physical or mental injury, emotional suffering, economic loss, or substantial impairment of their fundamental rights, through acts or omissions that constitute gross violations of international human rights law or serious violations of international humanitarian law. Furthermore, the term victim also includes the immediate family or dependents of the direct victim and persons who have suffered harm in intervening to assist victims in distress or prevent victimization. Additionally, quote, a person shall be considered a victim regardless of whether the perpetrator of the violation is identified, apprehended, prosecuted, 
or convicted and regardless of the familial relationship between the perpetrator and the victim. Also, the ICJ has specified that for purposes of the UN principles on reparation, the definition of victim is meant to be broad. According to the ICJ, a victim is not only the person who was the direct target of the violation, but any person affected by it directly or indirectly. The ICJ cited how certain authorities disfavor the distinction between direct and indirect victims. So reparations programs should use a wide and comprehensive definition of victim and should not distinguish between direct and indirect victims. A comprehensive definition of the word victim should include family members who have endured unique forms of suffering as a direct result of what happened to their families. While the UN principles on reparation do not formally define quote, gross violations of international human rights law or quote, serious violations of international humanitarian law. The ICJ defines gross violations and serious violations as the types of violations that affect in qualitative and quantitative terms the most basic rights of human beings, notably the right to life and the right to physical and moral integrity of the human person. Examples of these types of violations include genocide, slavery and slave trade, murder, and forced disappearances, torture or other cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment, prolonged arbitrary detention, deportation or forcible transfer of population, and systematic racial discrimination. The ICJ also held that harm should be presumed in cases of gross human rights violations. Victims of gross violations of international human rights law and serious violations of international humanitarian law are entitled to certain remedies under international law. Equal and effective access to justice, adequate, effective, and prompt reparation for harm suffered, and access to relevant information concerning violations and reparation mechanisms. According to the UN Human Rights Committee, quote, the right to an effective remedy necessarily entails the right to reparation. An effective remedy refers to procedural remedies where the right to reparation refers to restitution, compensation, rehabilitation, satisfaction, and guarantees of non-repetition. Also, victims, quote, shall have equal access to an effective judicial remedy as provided for under international law. This would require a state to, quote, establish functioning courts of law or other tribunals presided over by independent, impartial, and competent individuals exercising judicial functions as a prerequisite to ensuring that victims have access to an effective judicial remedy. This would also require the state to have, quote, competent authorities to enforce the law and any such remedies that are granted by the courts and tribunals. In order to satisfy this component of the International Standards for an Effective Reparations Program, the task force offers recommendations to the legislature in Part 5 of this report regarding a wide variety of statutory and regulatory changes to ensure non-repetition of identified historical injustices. Additionally, Part 8 of this report offers recommendations to the legislature that would ensure that the public is educated about and understands these harms. And finally, Part 9 of this report offers an accounting of the legal methods used to perpetuate a system of unequal justice, which the task force recommends the legislature dismantles in order to ensure non-repetition. 
Section 15, Examples of Other Reparatory Efforts. International Reparatory Efforts. In carrying out the legislature's direction to address how the task force's recommendations comport with international standards of remedy, the task force has considered and addressed worldwide examples of past and present attempts to remedy wrongs and injuries caused by state and private actors in other contexts, including attempts that have included full reparations. The task force examined the following initiatives. International Germany, Israel this reparations program was intended to address the harms inflicted on Jewish people who lived in Germany or in the territories controlled by Germany during the Third Reich, the regime that ruled Germany from 1933 to 1945. Beginning in 1933, the Third Reich implemented several provisions to control and limit the citizenship and freedom of its Jewish citizens. Initially, the laws excluded Jewish citizens from certain positions, schools, and professions. Eventually, these acts culminated in the, quote, final solution, the Holocaust, which was the genocide of the Jewish people through systematic killing inside and outside of concentration and extermination camps throughout Germany and territories controlled by Germany. In addition to these atrocities, about $6 billion in property was stolen from the Jewish people in Germany and territories controlled by Germany. Those that survived the concentration and extermination camps and those who survived outside of camps in slave labor programs or by hiding suffered significant physical and psychological injuries. In September 1952, representatives of the newly established State of Israel and the newly formed Federal Republic of Germany, FRG, met in Luxembourg and signed an agreement that required the FRG to pay reparations to Israel for the material damage caused by the criminal acts perpetrated by Germany against the Jewish people in the Holocaust. Although the 1952 Luxembourg Agreement predates the United Nations General Assembly's Principles on Reparation, which identify the five requirements for a full and effective reparations scheme, the agreement comes close to fully embodying those principles. The 1952 agreement consisted of three parts, two of which were protocols. The first part of the agreement required the FRG to pay Israel 3 billion Deutschmarks DM, to help resettle Jewish refugees in the new state of Israel. The 3 billion Deutschmarks sum would be paid in annual installments. The second part, Protocol 1, required the FRG to enact laws to compensate individuals. And the third part, Protocol 2, required the FRG to pay the Con Conference on Jewish Material Claims against Germany, the Claims Conference, 450 million Deutschmarks. In 1965, the FRG enacted the Federal Compensation Final Law. The final law made the following changes to the agreement. It created a hardship fund of 1.2 billion Deutschmarks to support refugees from Eastern Europe who were previously ineligible for compensation, primarily emigrants, from 1953 to 1965. It included compensation for health by easing the burden on claimants to prove damages to their health were caused by their earlier persecution, by including a presumption that if the claimant had been incarcerated for a year in a concentration camp, subsequent health problems could be causally linked to their persecution under the Nazi regime.
the category for loss of life was expanded to include deaths that occurred either during persecution or within eight months after. The ceiling for education claims increased to 10,000 Deutschmarks, and claims already adjudicated were to be revised based on the new law. The Luxembourg Agreement was unique in many ways. It was the first reparations agreement that required a country to compensate another country that was not the victor in a war. Further, it was the first reparations program where the perpetrator paid reparations, quote, on its own volition in order to facilitate self-rehabilitation. And the agreement was formed by two states that were descendant entities of the perpetrators and the victims. The program was also the largest reparations program ever implemented. The German government received over 4.3 million claims for individual compensation, of which 2 million were approved. It is estimated that by 2000, Germany had paid more than 82 billion Deutschmarks, or $38.6 billion, in reparations. Moreover, the agreement had significant economic and political consequences for Israel and the FRG. The treaty enabled a substantial trade relationship between the countries. During the period of enforcement for the treaty, they did not have political or diplomatic relations. But when reparations payments ceased in 1965, Israel and the FRG gradually initiated political relations. The 1953, 1956, and 1965 compensation laws excluded compensation for forced and slave labor. But in 2000, Germany and seven other countries, including the United States, enacted the Forced and Slave Labor Compensation Law. Former slave laborers received 15,000 Deutschmarks. Former forced laborers received 5,000 Deutschmarks. Payments were limited to claimants only and not extended to descendants. However, heirs of anyone who died after February 1999, the date negotiations over compensation began, could file a claim. The law also allowed for compensation of all non-Jewish survivors living outside the five Eastern Europe countries that signed the law. The International Organization for Migration processed those claims. By the claims deadline, it had received 306,000 claims. Chile. Under the dictatorship of General Augusto Pinochet from 1973 to 1990, the people of Chile experienced systematic state torture and violence. Approximately 2,600 to 3,400 Chilean citizens were executed or disappeared, while another estimated 30,000 to 100,000 were tortured. In 1988, a plebiscite was held to determine whether General Pinochet should remain president of the country, and Pinochet lost. However, it was not until March 1990 that Patricio Alwin was sworn as president of the Republic of Chile. One month after his inauguration, Alwin created the National Truth and Reconciliation Commission. This eight-member commission was tasked with disclosing the human rights violations that occurred under the previous dictatorship, gathering evidence to allow for victims to be identified, and recommending compensation in a legal, financial, medical, and administrative capacity. In February 1991, the Commission delivered its first report to the President, the Reading Report. 
President Alwyn sent a draft bill on victim compensation to Congress. The bill used the recommended measures of compensation from the Reading Report. The bill was approved and signed into law, Law 19.123, on February 8, 1992. Law 19.123 established the National Corporation for Reparation and Reconciliation with the purpose of coordinating, carrying out, and promoting actions needed to comply with the recommendations contained in the report of the National Truth and Reconciliation Commission. As written into Law 19.123, the corporation was tasked to achieve all of the following. Promoting reparations for the moral injury caused to the victims of the Pinochet regime and providing the social and legal assistance needed by their families to access the benefits of the law. Promoting and assisting actions aimed at determining the whereabouts and circumstances surrounding the disappearance or death of people at the hands of the Pinochet regime. Serving as a repository for the information collected by the National Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the National Corporation for Reparation and Reconciliation, and all information on cases and matters similar that may be compiled in the future. The corporation was authorized to request, collect, and process information in the possession of public or private institutions regarding human rights violations or political violence during the Pinochet regime. Conducting research and making decisions in certain cases regarding whether the person was a victim of human rights violations or political violence. Entering into agreements with nonprofit institutions or corporations to provide the professional assistance needed to carry out the aims of the corporation, including medical benefits. Making proposals for consolidating a culture of respect for human rights in the country. Law 19.123 also established a monthly pension for the families of the victims of human rights violations or political violence as identified in the report by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The Institute of Pension Normalization was placed in charge of paying the pensions throughout the country. Article 24 of the law established that the pension was compatible with any other benefits that the beneficiary was receiving at the moment or would receive in the future as well as any other Social Security benefits. In 1996, the monthly pension amounted to 226,667 Chilean pesos, or around $537. This figure was used as a reference for estimating the different amounts provided to each type of beneficiary, as defined in Law 19.123. In the years since its enactment, there have been public criticisms of the restitution or compensation measures enacted. For example, some have objected to allowing compensation based on the presumed death of some victims, while others have expressed a mistrust in the creation of a public interest corporation with little oversight and limited ability to investigate the whereabouts of disappeared detainees. Others have criticized a single pension model that does not take into account the number of members in each family in determining the amount of restitution. Law 19.123 also excluded certain beneficiaries, unmarried partners, victims without children, and mothers of children of unknown parentage. In 2005, the Chilean government decided to provide 28,459 registered victims or their relatives with lifelong governmental compensation approximately $200 per month, and free education, housing, and health care.
South Africa. Apartheid was an institutional regime of racial segregation and systemic oppression implemented in South Africa to deprive the majority black South African population of basic rights and secure the white minority's power over the country. Similar to the United States' system of segregation, de jure racial segregation was widely practiced in South Africa since the first white settlers arrived in the region. When the National Party gained control of the government in 1948, it expanded the policy of racial segregation, naming the system apartheid. The system of, quote, separate development was furthered by the Population Registration Act of 1950, which classified all South Africans as either Bantu, all black South Africans, colored, those of mixed race, or white. Another piece of legislation, the Group Areas Act of 1950, established residential and business sections in urban areas for each race and barred members of other races from living, operating businesses, or owning land in areas designated for a different race. The law was designated to remove thousands of, quote, coloreds, black South Africans, and Indians from areas classified for white occupation. As a result of several laws, specifically the Populations Registration Act, the Group Areas Act, and several land acts adopted between 1913 and 1955, more than 80% of South Africa's land was set aside for the white minority. To enforce the segregation of the races and prevent black South Africans from encroaching on white areas, the government strengthened existing pass laws requiring, quote, non-whites to carry documents authorizing their presence in restricted areas. Many private companies, including some based in the United States and Europe, enabled apartheid by manufacturing the military and police vehicles used to enforce segregation, or by creating the document system that stripped black South Africans of their citizenship and rights. In 1995, following the election of Nelson Mandela as the country's first non-white president, the South African government passed the Promotion of National Unity and Reconciliation Act to help transition South Africa out of the apartheid era and into a democracy in which black South Africans would have full participation. To make that transition, the act created the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which operated through three committees. The Committee on Human Rights Violations, which investigated the gross human rights violations committed during the apartheid regime. The Committee on Reparations and Rehabilitation, CRR, which developed final compensation policy recommendations to address the harms suffered by the victims of the gross human rights abuses committed to uphold apartheid. And the Amnesty Committee, which was responsible for determining which perpetrators of gross human rights violations would receive amnesty for civil and criminal liability for their crimes. In its final policy recommendations, the CRR recommended financial and symbolic compensation reparations as well as community rehabilitation programs and institutional reforms. To ensure successful implementation, the CRR also recommended that the government appoint a national body to implement the programs and a secretariat within the office of the president or the vice president to oversee implementation. The government adopted some of the CRR's symbolic reparation recommendations 
community rehabilitation program recommendations, and institutional reforms. The government paid reburial expenses to 47 families of disappeared persons whose remains were found and reburied, and enacted regulations to integrate institutions. There were also improvements made in housing, education, and access to medical care for black South Africans. The South African government did not adopt the CRR's financial recommendations nor its recommendation to appoint a national implementing body. In 2003, five years after the CRR submitted its final reparations policy recommendations, the South African government paid a one-time payment of 30,000 rand to some of the 22,000 victims. The payment was about one-fifth of the amount the CRR recommended that the government pay in individual reparations grants to adequately compensate victims for their suffering. By 2004, about 10% of the confirmed victims had still not received their payment. The Commission's CRR was also responsible for developing both the Urgent Interim Reparations Policy Program, UIR, and making final policy recommendations to the President. The UIR was an interim financial compensation program. The UIR regulations required referrals and financial assistance to access services necessary to meet urgent medical, emotional, educational, material, and symbolic needs to applicants whose requirements the CRR deemed urgent. The UIR payments were calculated based on need and the number of victims' dependents, ranging from a maximum of 2,000 rand for a victim with no dependents to a maximum of 5,705 rand for those with five or more dependents. The first UIR payments were made in July 1998. The UIR quote process was mostly completed in April 2001. The President's Fund paid out about 44 million rand in cash payments to 14,000 victims for three years. Some critics of the UIR program criticized the lack of information shared with victims about the Commission. Specifically, victims were not given information about how the Commission was organized or how it functioned. Thus, they were not empowered to engage with the Commission, nor were they knowledgeable about the next steps in the restitution process. And they received little information regarding the perpetrators the Amnesty Committee was considering for amnesty. Canada. Indigenous children in Canada were sent to residential schools from the 1600s until the mid-1990s, where they suffered severe abuses. First established by Roman Catholic and Protestant churches and based on claimed racial, cultural, and spiritual superiority, residential schools were an attempt to separate Indigenous children from their traditional cultures and convert them to Christianity. The passage of the Indian Act in 1876 formally gave the federal government the power to educate and assimilate indigenous people in Canada. In the Act's 1894 amendment made attendance at residential schools mandatory. Starting in the 1880s, the Canadian government established and expanded the residential school system ostensibly to assimilate indigenous peoples into settler society and to reduce indigenous dependence on public assistance. There were 130 residential schools in Canada between 1831 and 1996. During this time, more than 150,000 First Nations, Metis, and Inuit children were forced to attend these schools. 
Thousands of indigenous children died at school or as a result of their experiences in school, while many remain missing. Children were forced to leave their homes, parents, and often their siblings, as the schools were segregated based on gender. Indigenous culture was disparaged from the moment the children arrived at school, where they were required to give up their traditional clothes and wear new uniforms. The boys had their hair cut, and many students were given new names. At some schools, children were banned from speaking their native language, even in letters home to their parents. The Christian missionary staff at these schools emphasized Christian traditions while simultaneously denigrating indigenous spiritual traditions. Physical and sexual abuse were common. Many children were underfed and malnutrition and poor living conditions led to preventable diseases such as tuberculosis and influenza. Indigenous communities struggled to heal the harm done by these residential schools and starting from 1980, Former students campaigned for the government and churches to acknowledge the abuses of this system and provide some compensation. In 1996, a group of 27 former students filed a class action lawsuit against the Government of Canada and the United Church of Canada. Thousands of other former students began to sue the federal government and churches. The federal government issued a statement of reconciliation in 1998 that recognized the abuses of the residential school system and established the Aboriginal Healing Foundation. In 2001, the federal government created the Office of Indian Residential Schools Resolution Canada to manage the abuse claims filed by former students through the alternative dispute resolution process. In 2006, the Canadian government entered into the Indian Residential Schools Settlement Agreement. It acknowledged the damage Canada inflicted on its Indigenous peoples throughout the residential school system and established a multi-billion dollar fund to help former students recover. The agreement has five main components. The Common Experience Payment, Independent Assessment Process, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, Commemoration, and Health and Healing Services. The settlement agreement allocated $1.9 billion to the Common Experience Payment for all former students of the residential schools. Every former student was given $10,000 for the first year at school and $3,000 for each additional year. By the end of 2012, 98% of the 80,000 eligible former students received payments. The independent assessment process provided a mechanism to resolve sexual and serious physical and psychological abuse claims. By the end of 2012, it had provided more than $1.7 billion to former students. The settlement agreement also allocated $60 million to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission for five years so that individuals, families, and communities could tell their stories, and the commission held national events to bring public attention to the issue. The commission issued a report in December 2015 entitled Honoring the Truth, Reconciling for the Future that documented the experience of the 150,000 survivors. The settlement agreement also allocated $20 million for commemorative projects and $125 million for the Aboriginal Healing Foundation. It also established the Indian Residential Schools Resolution Health Support Program, which provides former students with mental health resources provided by elders, Indigenous community health workers, psychologists, and social workers. 
In January 2023, Canada also agreed to pay $2.8 billion to settle the latest in a series of lawsuits seeking compensation for the harm to Indigenous communities through the residential schools. This settlement is a resolution of a class action lawsuit initially filed by 325 First Nations in 2012 seeking compensation for the destruction of their languages and culture. Under this settlement, the federal government agreed to establish a trust fund for Indigenous communities to use for educational, cultural, and language programs. A federal court judge approved the $2.8 billion settlement in March 2023, noting that it was, quote, fair, reasonable, and in the best interests of the plaintiffs. The agreement allows the First Nations communities themselves to decide what to do with these funds based on the four pillars principles outlined in the agreement. The revival and protection of indigenous language, the revival and protection of indigenous culture, the protection and promotion of heritage, and the wellness of indigenous communities and their members. The settlement was to go to an appeal period after which the money would be managed by a board of indigenous leaders through a nonprofit fund. The settlement does not release the federal government from future lawsuits involving children who died or disappeared at the residential schools. Domestic Repertory Efforts History of the Reparations Movement in the United States the earliest calls for reparations for African Americans precede the Civil War, with enslaved people demanding compensation for their labor and bondage. In 1783, Belinda Sutton, a formerly enslaved woman in Massachusetts, petitioned the Massachusetts General Court for a pension from the estate of her enslaver, Isaac Royal, Jr. Sutton's petition is one of the first examples of African Americans demanding reparations. The court granted her petition, partially due to Royal's resistance to American independence and allegiance to King George III. Calls for reparatory justice gained momentum at the end of the Civil War, after the federal government failed to fulfill General William T. Sherman's promise to give 40 acres and a mule to those who were formerly enslaved. African-American abolitionist Frederick Douglass demanded land distribution for the formerly enslaved, comparing their plight to the Russian serfs who received land grants following their emancipation. In the late 1800s, African-American freedmen led the call for reparations. Callie House and Isaiah Dickerson chartered the first national reparations organization, the National Ex-Slave Mutual Relief Bounty and Pension Association, MRBPA, in Nashville in 1898. The MRBPA grew to 300,000 members by 1916. Their mission included, one, identifying the formerly enslaved and adding their names to the petition for a pension. Two, lobbying Congress to provide pensions for the nation's estimated 1.9 million formerly enslaved, 21% of all African Americans by 1899. Three, starting local chapters and providing members with financial assistance when they became incapacitated by illness, and four, providing a burial assistance payment when a member died. MRBA filed a lawsuit against the federal government on behalf of African-American freedmen and their ancestors for the value of the cotton that had been grown and harvested by persons, quote, subject to a system of involuntary 
servitude in the South between 1859 and 1868. The MRBPA petitioned for $68 million, the money the government collected from the internal revenue tax on raw cotton, on the cotton they produced. The claim was denied based on government immunity, the U.S. Supreme Court affirmed. The MRBPA faced strong opposition from the U.S. government. In 1916, the government indicted Callie House for fraud, claiming that the leaders of MRBPA obtained money from the formerly enslaved by fraudulent circulars, advertising that reparations from the government were forthcoming. House was convicted and served time in a penitentiary in Missouri. Another reparations trailblazer was Queen Mother Audley Moore, known as the mother of the modern reparations movement. Moore founded several organizations, including the Committee for Reparations for Descendants of U.S. Slaves, dedicated to fighting for land and other reparations for African Americans. In the 1950s, she formally petitioned the UN for reparations for African Americans. In the 1960s, many civil rights and black nationalist groups also demanded reparatory justice in addition to legal equality. For example, the Black Panther Party's 10-point program called for the end to the robbery by the white man of our black community and demanded the debt owed of 40 acres and two mules. In a speech to students at Michigan State University in 1963, Malcolm X called for reparations. Quote, The greatest contribution to this country was that which was contributed by the black man. Now when you see this, and then you stop and consider the wages that were kept back from millions of black people, not for one year, but for 310 years, you'll see how this country got so rich so fast, and what made the economy as strong as it is today. And all that, and all of that slave labor that was amassed in unpaid wages is due someone today. The reparations movement surged in the 1980s. The National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America was founded in 1987, and with its help, U.S. Representative John Conyers in 1989 introduced H.R. 40, a bill to establish a federal commission to study and develop reparation proposals for African Americans. Representative Conyers introduced the bill 20 times without success. The publication of the 2014 essay, The Case for Reparations by Ta-Nehisi Coates in The Atlantic, refocused the country's attention on reparations. And in the summer of 2020, the murder of George Floyd by police in Minneapolis sparked racial justice protests across the country that further pushed demands for reparations to the forefront of public conversation. Reparations was also an issue in the 2020 Democratic presidential primary. In April 2021, H.R. 40, sponsored by U.S. Representative Sheila Jackson Lee, was voted out of the House Judiciary Committee for the first time, but failed to receive consideration by the full House of Representatives in the 117th Congress of 2021 and 2022. In the absence of federal actions, states, cities, and municipalities have taken calls for operations into their own hands. For example, California with AB 3121. The task force and this report has begun the process of developing a reparations program specific to our state's experience. Nevertheless, this task force trusts that the federal government will develop a national solution to what is ultimately a national responsibility. U.S. Indian Claims Commission 
The United States Indian Claims Commission was established in 1946 through federal legislation. The ICC was ostensibly established to redress the harms inflicted on Native populations during the campaign of colonization and relocation of the late 18th and 19th centuries. The government's inhumanity and the atrocities committed during this period were diverse and devastating. The government's actions included the widespread killing of Native Americans that many, including California Governor Gavin Newsom, have called a genocide, and a staggering theft of Native American land. Spurred by the doctrine of manifest destiny, the government acquired nearly 2 billion acres of land from indigenous peoples, leaving just 140 million acres under Native control. This dispossession was accomplished by various means, including outright conquest, treaty, executive order, and federal statute. Although the government's abuses during this period were far-reaching, the ICC's focus was solely on land transactions, most notably the treaty process. The ICC was authorized to adjudicate tribal land claims, but it was limited to awarding monetary relief and did not have jurisdiction to restore title to the land. The authorizing legislation permitted various claims, including those premised on fraud, duress, and unconscionable consideration, as well as those based on fair and honorable dealings. The Congressional Committee on Indian Affairs stated that the bill was primarily designed to right a continuing wrong to our Indian citizens, for which no possible justification can be asserted. Indeed, the majority of claims alleged that the United States acquired valuable land for unconscionably low prices in bargains struck between unequals. Another large swath of claims alleged that the government had failed to abide by treaty provisions and called for an historical accounting, including in instances where the government was alleged to have mismanaged tribal funds. The commission initially comprised three members, all appointed by President Harry Truman. The ICC acted as a quasi-judicial branch of the legislature that considered voluminous documentary and testimonial evidence, rendered rulings on motions, and presided over trials. Claims could be filed only during the first five years of the commission, and within that filing period, 370 petitions were submitted and later divided into more than 600 dockets. Neither the statute of limitations nor doctrine of latches could be raised as a defense to tribal claims, but all other defenses were available to the government. The ICC was initially set to terminate 10 years after its first meeting, but its lifespan was repeatedly extended until its termination in 1978. Individual cases often took several years to complete, and the appeal process alone typically took between eight months and three years. During its tenure, the Commission adjudicated more than 500 claims and issued tribal awards in over 60% of matters. It awarded approximately $800 million in total compensation to tribal claimants. At its termination in 1978, the Commission had not fully cleared its docket and the remaining matters were transferred to the Court of Claims. Historians and legal scholars have argued that the Commission did not go nearly far enough to address the centuries-long slaughter, displacement, and oppression of Native Americans. The Commission was not empowered to convey land back to tribes, yet its rulings have barred all subsequent claims, including those to repossess land. Nor did the Commission address issues such as the suppression of Native languages, religions, and forms of government.
and even where a tribe was able to secure a financial award, the amounts were significantly reduced in various ways. For example, the awards were whittled down by offsets for monies purportedly spent by the government on behalf of the tribes, but those monies had often been spent to promote governmental rather than tribal interests. Moreover, except in the rare claim premised on a Fifth Amendment taking, the Commission ruled that interest on amounts owed was not recoverable. The unpaid interest was estimated by the U.S. Solicitor General to have been several billion dollars. A core defect in the ICC's structure and practice was the adversarial rather than investigative nature of the proceedings. One scholar has observed that the Commission, submissive to the requests of the lawyers who practiced before it, has provided for a bewildering series of hearings on title, value offset, attorney's fees, and all the motions that any party chooses to present. Moreover, the government's role as an adversary to the claimants meant that the government's attorneys often aggressively fought against proper compensation for tribal claimants, and as a matter of policy, the Attorney General did not pursue settlement. Finally, the Native Americans' obligation to retain counsel at their own cost diminished any eventual financial reward. In light of these and other inefficiencies, many have argued that the Commission should have operated as an investigative rather than quasi-judicial body. Indeed, the Commission was statutorily authorized to conduct its own investigations, but it rarely employed these powers and instead consistently acted as a tribunal. Tuskegee Study of Untreated Syphilis in the Negro Male The Tuskegee Study of Untreated Syphilis in the Negro Male was conducted in Macon County, Alabama between 1932 and 1972 on the campus of the Tuskegee Institute. The study was intended to observe the natural history of untreated syphilis in African-American men. A total of 600 African-American men were enrolled in the study and told by researchers that they were being treated for, quote, bad blood, which colloquially in the region referred to a number of diagnosable ailments including, but not limited to, anemia, fatigue, and syphilis. The African-American men in the study were only told they were receiving free health care from the federal government of the United States. Although there were no proven treatments for syphilis when the study began, penicillin became the standard treatment for the disease in 1947. However, the medicine was withheld from those enrolled in the study, resulting in blindness, deteriorating mental health, severe health issues, and sometimes death. Following a leak of the study and subsequent reporting by the Associated Press in July 1972, international public outcry led to a series of actions taken by U.S. federal agencies. The Assistant Secretary for Health and Scientific Affairs appointed an ad hoc advisory panel that concluded that there was evidence that the study routinely ignored scientific research protocols necessary to ensure the safety and well-being of the human subjects involved. Following the advisory panel's findings in October 1972, a class action lawsuit was filed on behalf of the men in the study, as well as their wives, children, and families, resulting in a nearly $10 million settlement in 1974. Under the settlement, 70 living syphilitic participants received $37,500 each. The 46 living men in the control group received $16,000 each. The family members of the 339 deceased syphilitic participants received $15,000 per participant. 
the family members of the deceased members of the control group received $5,000 per participant. The settlement included free health care for life for the participants still living, as well as health care for their infected wives, widows, and children. The federal government in 1974 enacted legislation to study and write regulations governing studies involving human participants and to implement policy changes to protect human subjects in biomedical and behavioral research. Following a 1994 symposium studying the Tuskegee syphilis experiments, the Tuskegee Syphilis Study Legacy Committee was formed and issued its final report in 1996 seeking to one persuade President Bill Clinton to apologize to the surviving study participants, their families, and to the Tuskegee community, and two, develop a strategy to redress the damages caused by the study and to transform its damaging legacy. In 1997, President Clinton formally apologized and held a ceremony at the White House for surviving Tuskegee study participants. Along with the apology, President Clinton pledged a $200,000 planning grant to help Tuskegee University build a center for bioethics in research and health care. President Clinton also announced the creation of bioethics fellowships for minority students and extended the life of the National Bioethics Advisory Commission to 1999. Additionally, the President directed the Health and Human Services Secretary to draft a report outlining ways to better involve all communities, especially minority communities, in research and health care. In 2022, the Millbank Memorial Fund, the foundation that paid the funeral expenses of the deceased study participants as an incentive for their participation, publicly apologized to descendants of the study's victims for its role in the study. Japanese American Incarceration On February 19, 1942, President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066 which ordered the incarceration of Japanese Americans and created a zone, quote, from which any or all persons may be excluded at the discretion of the Secretary of War or appropriate military commander from the whole of California, the western halves of Washington State and Oregon, and the southern third of Arizona. By the fall of 1942, all Japanese Americans were evicted from California and sent to one of ten incarceration camps that were built to imprison them. Many incarcerated persons lost their property and assets as they were prohibited from taking more than what they could carry with them, and what remained was either sold, confiscated, or destroyed in government storage. Over 100,000 Japanese Americans were incarcerated in desolate camps for up to four years. In 1980, the United States Congress and President Jimmy Carter approved the Commission on the Wartime Internment and Relocation of Civilians, CWRIC. The CWRIC was established to, one, review the facts and circumstances surrounding the relocation and incarceration of thousands of American civilians during World War II under Executive Order 9066 and the impact of that order on American citizens and resident aliens. Two, Review directives of the United States military forces requiring the relocation and incarceration of American citizens, including Aleut civilians and permanent resident aliens of the Aleutian Islands and Pribilof Islands. And three, recommend appropriate remedies. In December 1982, the Commission released a 467-page report, Personal Justice Denied, 
detailing the history and circumstances of the wartime treatment of the people of Japanese ancestry and the people of the Aleutian Islands. The findings and recommendations of the CWRIC, among other events, helped bring about the passage of the Civil Liberties Act of 1988 to acknowledge and provide redress for the incarceration of Japanese Americans in the United States between 1942 and 1946. The federal government's plan included a cash payment of $20,000 for each surviving incarcerated person and a program to fund public education of the events. Under the Act, the United States Attorney General was charged with locating eligible individuals, and by 1999, redress payments had been distributed to approximately 82,220 claimants. The Civil Liberties Act of 1988 also established a Civil Liberties Public Education Fund within the U.S. Treasury, administered by the Secretary of the Treasury, and available for disbursement by the Attorney General and by the newly established Civil Liberties Public Education Fund Board of Directors. The trust totaled $1,650,000,000, and the fund would terminate once the money was exhausted or 10 years after the enactment of the Civil Liberties Act of 1988. The Act also called upon each department and agency of the U.S. government to review with liberality, giving full consideration to the findings of the CWRIC, any application by an eligible individual for the restitution of any position, status, or entitlement lost because of any discriminatory act of the U.S. government against those of Japanese ancestry during the period of incarceration. Finally, along with the Act's payments, the government offered a formal apology to each surviving incarcerated person. September 11, 2001 The militant network Al-Qaeda carried out four coordinated terrorist attacks against the United States on September 11, 2001, commonly known as 9-11. The incineration of the Twin Towers and the crashed aircrafts released clouds of noxious toxins in Lower Manhattan. First responders, volunteers, and residents near Ground Zero inhaled harmful dust, smoke, toxic chemicals, and particle remnants. This toxic exposure subsequently caused various illnesses, including more than 60 types of cancer, respiratory conditions, and digestive disorders. Thousands of survivors and first responders have been diagnosed with 9-11 related illnesses, and thousands more have died. Almost immediately after the September 11 attacks, Congress passed the Air Transportation Safety and Stabilization Act, which enacted the September 11th Victim Compensation Fund, VCF. This bill sought to bring financial relief to any individual or relative of a deceased individual who was physically injured or killed as a result of the terrorist attacks. The claims window for VCF closed in 2004. The VCF was reopened on January 2, 2011, when President Barack Obama signed the James Zadroga 9-11 Health and Compensation Act of 2010, the Zadroga Act. While the original, original VCF only covered the victims or their heirs who were either killed or injured as a direct result of the 9-11 terrorist attacks, the Zadroga Act expanded the VCF to compensate victims for injury or death related to the debris removal process conducted in the aftermath of the terrorist attacks and exposure to the toxic air in Lower Manhattan and the other attack sites. The new claim filing deadline was October 2016. 
The Zadroga Act also established a World Trade Center health program to provide medical monitoring and treatment for responders and survivors with chronic health conditions arising from the 9-11 attacks. In contrast to the World Trade Center health program, the VCF does not cover mental health conditions. In 2015, the Zadroga Act was reauthorized and extended until December 2020. Certain award calculations were changed. The original VCF paid an average death claim award of over $2 million and awarded anywhere from $500 to over $8.6 million in personal injury claims. Due to budgetary considerations, the 2015 reauthorization of the Zadroga Act limited the maximum amount individuals could receive as compensation. It capped awards for non-economic loss from cancer conditions at $250,000, awards for non-economic loss from non-cancer conditions at $90,000, and awards for loss of annual income at $200,000. The VCF was designed to be a compensation scheme in lieu of tort litigation for the economic and non-economic losses incurred by victims who were physically injured and families of victims whose lives were taken as a result of the 9-11 attacks. Claimants who participated in this compensation scheme waived their right to sue for damages for injury or death as a result of the attacks. The compensation fund was chosen as an alternative to potential class action toxic tort litigation because it was determined to be a more efficient and effective solution for compensating victims. It was enacted to relieve victims and their families from navigating through the legal system and possibly having their claims failing due to government immunity or other potential bars. The VCF has received inconsistent funding. In the two decades since the 9-11 attacks, the fund has struggled to meet rising medical costs and cancer rates. Many exposure symptoms and 9-11 related diseases took years to manifest. The VCF's most recent five-year extension only lasted until 2020. In February 2019, a special master determined that the then-current funding was insufficient to pay the remaining pending and projected VCF claims and announced that award amounts would need to be reduced. In response to public outrage, the VCF was permanently authorized in July 2019, ensuring that the VCF has sufficient funding to pay all pending claims and all future claims filed by October 1, 2090. It also allows for supplemental compensation to any victim whose previous award had been reduced due to the previous budgetary restrictions. The VCF's efficacy has also been impacted by some claimants providing inadequate documentation for their claim or filing premature claims. According to the VCF's 2022 annual report, 54% of claims are deactivated for failure to provide the minimum required information. 41.9% of all claims are submitted with insufficient proof of presence documents and 32.3% do not have a certified physical condition at the time the claim is filed. Sandy Hook Elementary School On December 14, 2012, a gunman shot and murdered 20 children and six adult staff members at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newton, Connecticut after killing his own mother. The gunman used two high-powered rifles, two semi-automatic pistols, as well as several hundred rounds of ammunition stored in high-capacity magazines. His mother had lawfully purchased several of the guns. When he arrived at the school, he shot and killed the school's principal and school psychologist. Teachers who heard the gunshots entered lockdown procedures. 
but he was able to enter a classroom where he killed the teacher and 14 children. He entered a second classroom and killed the teacher and six students. He also killed a special education aide and behavioral therapist. When police arrived at the school, they discovered that the gunman had killed himself. It is the deadliest mass shooting at an elementary school in U.S. history and the second deadliest shooting, school shooting overall. The school was demolished in 2014 and replaced by a new building in 2016. In 2013, Connecticut Governor Daniel P. Malloy established the Sandy Hook Advisory Commission and directed it to review current policy and make specific recommendations in the areas of public safety, with particular attention paid to school safety, mental health, and gun violence prevention. The commission concluded that the shooter acted alone but did not identify a motive. The commission made several recommendations including investment in mental health professionals, funding for short-term and long-term recovery plans, and behavioral health and education responses to crisis events. After the shootings, the federal government gave the town of Newton and several agencies related to Sandy Hook over $17 million in aid used primarily to enhance mental health services and school security. Much of the money from the grants went directly to opening the new Sandy Hook Elementary. In 2013, the Federal Department of Justice's Office for Victims of Crime granted to the Connecticut Judicial Branch $1.5 million to reimburse organizations and agencies that provided direct support to victims, first responders, and the Newton community. The grant was distributed through the Anti-Terrorism and Emergency Assistance Program, which grants awards for crisis response and is funded by the Crime Victims Fund for the Anti-Terrorism Emergency Reserve Fund. The federal DOJ also provided $2.5 million in funding for Connecticut and Newtown law enforcement agencies through the Bureau of Justice Assistance. In 2014, the federal DOJ issued another grant for $7.1 million through its Office for Victims of Crime. This grant was for victim services, school safety efforts, and new mental health services. Additionally, the town of Newton and the state received $2.5 million from the federal DOJ for police overtime costs. School emergency response to violence grants from the Department of Education totaled $6.4 million. $1.3 million was earmarked for mental health providers working with student survivors. The remainder was used to hire teachers, security guards, and other personnel. Iranian Hostages On November 4, 1979, roughly 3,000 Iranians stormed the U.S. Embassy in Tehran and took 63 American men and women hostage, including diplomats. The seizure took place shortly after the Iranian Revolution. In early 1981, Algerian diplomats brokered an agreement, the Algiers Accords, and the hostages were released on January 20, 1981, minutes after the inauguration of Ronald Reagan as U.S. President. The Algiers Accords included, among other items, a provision preventing the freed hostages from seeking compensation from Iran in U.S. courts. As a result, former hostages and their families have never successfully won court judgments to collect damages for the harms of the hostage crisis. On the same day that the Algiers Accords were signed, then U.S. President Jimmy Carter created the President's Commission on Hostage Compensation, with the goal of providing recommendations on financial compensation to former hostages. 
The commission issued a report that the United States as the employer of the former hostages should not be held liable in a tort sense, but that the former hostages should receive a payment of tax-exempt detention benefits in the amount of $12.50 per day of captivity, similar to benefits paid to Vietnam War prisoners of war. These recommendations were debated in Congress, but ultimately not adopted. In 2015, Congress passed the Justice for United States Victims of State-Sponsored Terrorism Act, establishing a fund through the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2016 to compensate the American diplomats and staff who had been held hostage at the U.S. Embassy in Tehran for 444 days between 1979 and 1981. The fund initially included an appropriation for $1.025 billion for fiscal year 2017. Further funding has been provided by proceeds of federal enforcement actions. At the time of passage, 37 former hostages were still alive. Each hostage is entitled to receive $10,000 per day of captivity, and spouses and children are each entitled to a lump sum of $600,000. Some of the appropriated money came from a $9 billion penalty assessed on Paris-based bank BNP Paribas for violating sanctions against Iran, Sudan, and Cuba. In November 2019, Congress enacted the United States Victims of State-Sponsored Terrorism Fund Clarification Act, amending the original legislation by extending the life of the fund and expanding eligibility to receive payments from the fund by including, for example, 9-11 victims who had won judgments against Iran. The Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021 again amended the legislation. The fund has distributed $3.3 billion since its creation. As of the latest report, $93.5 billion in compensatory and statutory damages remained unpaid for the former hostages, judgment holders, and 9-11 victims eligible for compensation from the fund. The fund is scheduled to terminate in 2039 and the special master plans to authorize future payments if sufficient funds are available. State and local repertory efforts. Rosewood, Florida. The decimation of Rosewood started on January 1, 1923, when a white woman named Fanny Taylor reported an attack by an unidentified African-American man in the town next to Rosewood. Many African-American descendants of Rosewood contend that the, quote, attack was cover-up for a visit from her white lover. Hearing the report from Taylor, a white vigilante mob led by Levy County Sheriff Robert Elias Walker descended upon Rosewood. The mob tortured and killed Sam Carter, an African-American. For the next week, Hundreds of white vigilantes, consisting of KKK members and other deputies from neighboring counties, arrived in Rosewood. They burned every home and building, including churches and schools, murdered six African-American residents, and wounded dozens more. Two white men also died in a shootout. News of the, quote, race war traveled quickly throughout the state and the country but the Florida governor never sent the National Guard to protect African-American residents and end the violence. Many of Rosewood's African-American residents fled to the nearby swamps and hid during the riots. A rescue train evacuated fleeing residents to Gainesville. At the end of the violence, only the house of John and Mary Jane Hall Wright, the white residents of Rosewood, remained standing.
In February 1923, a grand jury convened in Bronson, Florida to investigate the Rosewood Massacre. Four days later, the grand jury found insufficient evidence to prosecute. African-American residents never returned to Rosewood. After weeks of sensation in the news following the violence in January 1923, the story of the Rosewood Massacre disappeared from public media, as survivors largely never spoke of the event. In 1982, the St. Petersburg Times unraveled the history of Rosewood in a comprehensive article that later became a story on CBS's 60 Minutes. Doctor was the driving force behind the Rosewood becoming a public issue. He secured a pro bono counsel to help descendants and victims seek compensation from the state for the violence and destruction of Rosewood. In 1993, an academic report substantiated the claims of Rosewood descendants. Chaired by Dr. Maxine Jones of the Florida State University Department of History, the team issued a documented history of the incident which occurred at Rosewood, Florida in January 1923. Then in 1994, the Florida legislature passed a claim bill to acknowledge and provide redress for the destruction and massacre of Rosewood. Florida's restitution to victims included approximately $2.1 million in compensation and a state scholarship fund for direct descendants. The bill, quote, recognized an equitable obligation to redress the injuries as a result of the destruction of Rosewood and consisted of, one, a finding of facts, two, a direction to the Florida Department of Law Enforcement to conduct a criminal investigation in and around the destruction of Rosewood, three, $500,000 to be distributed from the General Revenue Fund to African-American families from Rosewood to compensate for demonstrated property loss, Four, compensation up to $150,000 from the General Revenue Fund for each of the nine living survivors. Five, the establishment of a state scholarship fund for direct descendants of Rosewood families. Six, a direction to the state university system to continue researching the destruction of Rosewood, the history of race relations in Florida, and to develop educational materials about the destruction of Rosewood. The Rosewood Family Scholarship Program is codified in the state's education code, and the Florida Department of Education promulgated the criteria to receive an award. The Rosewood Family Scholarship provides student financial assistance to a maximum of 50 students annually and currently pays up to $6,100 per student per academic year. To be eligible, applicants must be direct descendants who complete a Florida financial aid application provide documentation of an ancestry such as birth certificate, marriage license, death certificate, church record, or obituary, and enroll in a state university, Florida College System Institution, or career center authorized by law. Applicants are selected based on need. In 2004, Florida Historical Marker co-sponsored by the state and the Real Rosewood Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to preserving the history of Rosewood, was placed on State Road 24 to note where the community once was. It states, quote, those who survived were forever scarred. North Carolina Sterilization In 1919, North Carolina passed its first forced sterilization law, which was amended in 1929 to allow the head of any penal or charitable institution that received some state support to, quote, have the necessary operation for asexualization or sterilization performed upon any mentally defective or feeble-minded inmate or patient 
thereof. The North Carolina Supreme Court invalidated the law in 1933 because it failed to provide any notice or opportunity for appeal. In response, the North Carolina legislature created the North Carolina Eugenics Board to implement the newly amended forced sterilization law with very limited appeal rights. The five members of the board heard petitions brought by heads of state institutions, county superintendents of welfare, next of kin, or legal guardians, arguing that individuals should be sterilized due to being epileptic, quote, feeble-minded, or mentally diseased. There was a very limited appeal process, but the board approved about 90% of the petitions. The state ultimately sterilized around 7,600 persons, the third largest number in the country. The program was somewhat unique in that it also sterilized non-institutionalized individuals, not just those residing in penal or mental facilities. Moreover, the vast majority of sterilizations took place after World War II. In 2002, Governor Mike Easley apologized for forced sterilizations performed under the purview of the state of North Carolina's Eugenics Board. In 2010, Governor Bev Perdue established North Carolina Justice for Sterilization Victims Foundation as part of the North Carolina Department of Administration to function as a clearinghouse to help victims of the former state eugenics board. During 2011 and 2012, the foundation also supported the separate gubernatorial task force on eugenics compensation established under Executive Order 83. This effort culminated in the state legislature creating the Eugenics Asexualization and Sterilization Compensation Program in 2013. North Carolina was the first state to pass legislation to compensate victims of state-sponsored eugenic sterilizations. The law set aside $10 million pool for compensation payments and 220 victims received $20,000 in 2014, $15,000 in 2015, and a final payment of around $10,000 in 2018. The statute compensates individuals who were asexualized or sterilized involuntarily under the authority of the Eugenics Board of North Carolina under either the 1933 or 1937 version of the laws and who were still alive at the time the statute was enacted. The limitation of compensation to those sterilized by the State Eugenics Board limited the state's ability to remedy much of the involuntary sterilization that occurred in the state, as many individuals were ultimately sterilized at the county level without the involvement of the state board. Virginia in 1924, Virginia passed its Eugenical Sterilization Act, which authorized the sexual sterilization of inmates at state institutions. The act authorized the superintendent of the Western, Eastern, Southwestern, or Central State Hospital, or the State Colony for Epileptics and Feeble-Minded, to impose sterilization upon any patient when he had the opinion that doing so was for the best interests of the patients and of society. The Eugenical Sterilization Act was passed on the same day alongside the Racial Integrity Act, which banned interracial marriage by requiring marriage applicants to identify their race as white, colored, or mixed, with white being defined as a person, quote, who has no trace whatsoever of any blood other than Caucasian. Scholars have observed that the two acts passed together aim to purify the white race. One inmate, Carrie Buck, appealed her order of sterilization, but the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the Virginia state law 
in Buck v. Bell, 1927, 274 U.S. 200. The controversial ruling was never overturned, but the law was repealed in 1974. Between 1927 and 1972, Virginia sterilized about 8,300 people. In 2002, 75 years after Buck v. Bell, Virginia Governor Mark R. Warner issued an apology for the state's embrace of eugenics and denounced the state's practice that involuntarily sterilized persons confined to state institutions from 1927 to 1979. In 2015, the Virginia Legislature voted to enact the Virginia Victims of Eugenic Sterilization Compensation Program, VESC, and allocated $400,000 from the State General Fund for compensation to individuals who were involuntarily sterilized pursuant to the Virginia Eugenical Sterilization Act and who were living as of February 1, 2015. As written in the budget, the funds were to be managed by the Department of Behavioral Health and Development Services and limited to $25,000 per claim, instead of the proposed $50,000 per claim. Furthermore, should the funding provided for compensation be exhausted prior to the end of fiscal year 2016, the Department was directed to continue to collect applications. The Department was mandated to provide a report to the Governor and Chairs of the House Appropriations and Senate Finance Committees on a quarterly basis on the number of additional individuals who applied. As of the enactment, there were only 11 surviving victims. An individual or lawfully authorized representative is eligible to request compensation under this program if the individual was a. involuntarily sterilized pursuant to the 1924 Virginia Eugenical Sterilization Act, b. living as of February 1, 2015, and c. sterilized while a patient at Eastern State Hospital, Western State Hospital, Central State Hospital, Southwestern State Hospital, or the Central Virginia Training Center, formerly known as the State Colony for Epileptics and Feeble-Minded, now closed. California Sterilization Compensation Program California's eugenic sterilization program began in 1909 and authorized medical superintendents in state homes and state hospitals to perform asexualization on patients. This allowed medical personnel to perform vasectomies on men and salpingectomies on women who are identified as, quote, afflicted with mental disease which may have been inherited and is likely to be transmitted to descendants. The various grades of feeble-mindedness, those suffering from perversion or marked departures from normal mentality or from disease of a syphilitic nature. California maintained 12 state homes and state hospitals that housed thousands of patients who were committed by the courts, family members, and medical authorities. While many sterilizations included the use of consent forms, such consent was often a condition for release from commitment, and this, along with other conditions, prevented true consent. Moreover, though, the law did not target specific racial or ethnic groups in practice. Labels of mental deficiency and feeble-mindedness were applied disproportionately to racial and ethnic minorities, people with actual and perceived disabilities, poor people, and women. California's eugenic sterilization law was repealed in 1979, but sterilizations without proper consent continued in state institutions. In 2003, 
The state of California formally apologized for California's eugenic sterilization program up to 1979, including apologies from Governor Gray Davis, Attorney General Bill Lockyer, and a resolution passed by the state Senate expressing profound regret for the program. In 2014, the California State Auditor released an audit of female inmate sterilizations that occurred in the state prison system's medical facilities between the fiscal years 2005 to 2006 and 2012 to 2013. The auditor discovered 144 women imprisoned by the state were sterilized through bilateral tubal ligation, which was medically unnecessary and used solely for female sterilization. Following this report, the legislature prohibited the sterilization for the purpose of birth control of any individual under the custody of California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. There are an estimated 244 survivors of illegal prison sterilization. The California legislature passed and Governor Gavin Newsom signed Assembly Bill Number 137 in the 2021-2022 legislative session, apologizing for sterilizations at state prisons, ordering the creation of memorial plaques and allocating $4.5 million for compensation to those sterilized by the state. AB 137 created the California Forced or Involuntary Sterilization Compensation Program, which financially compensates survivors of state-sponsored sterilization. The California Victim Compensation Board administers the program. Each approved applicant receives an initial payment of $15,000 within 60 days of notice of confirmed eligibility. After all applications are processed and all initial payments are made, any remaining program funds will be dispersed evenly to the qualified recipients by March 31, 2024. Chicago Police Department John Burge was a high-ranking Chicago Police Department officer who from 1972 to 1991 led a group of detectives and officers who tortured and abused over 120 African Americans, causing many victims to issue coerced confessions. Burge led operations of cruelty that included physical and psychological abuse such as trickery, deception, threats, intimidation, physical beatings, sexual humiliation, mock execution, and electroshock torture. Moreover, evidence suggests judges and some city officials were complicit in these abuses for many years. As a result, many African American victims were convicted of crimes due to coerced confessions, and some were sentenced to the death penalty. There was an effort to hold Burge specifically accountable for his actions, but the statute of limitations had expired on many of the cases of torture. Community members started to seek alternative methods of repair, which eventually led to a reparations ordinance. Community activists in Chicago, including those in the Chicago Torture Justice Memorial and Joey Mogul of People's Law Office, sought compensation for years. Activists petitioned the Inter-American Commission for Human Rights, IACHR, and the United Nations Committee Against Torture, UNCAT, Although the IACHR did not take official action, the UNCAT issued a report affirming the advocate's position and urged the United States to provide redress to the survivors of torture, quote, by supporting the passage of the ordinance entitled Reparations for the Chicago Police Torture Survivors. The UNCAT also noted that although Burge was later convicted for perjury and obstruction of justice, 
Investigations did not gather sufficient evidence for a constitutional rights violation prosecution, so no police officer has been convicted for their crimes, and the majority of victims still did not receive compensation for the extensive injuries suffered. In 2015, the Chicago City Council approved a municipal ordinance giving reparations to Burge torture survivors, and the $5.5 million package awarded claimants $100,000 in financial payments. In addition, the ordinance included a formal apology, the creation of a commission to administer financial reparations, free tuition at the City Colleges of Chicago, and free access to job training and placement programs for survivors, psychological counseling and health care for survivors, priority access to other support services for survivors, the inclusion of the Burge case in the U.S. History Curriculum for 8th and 10th grade students, and a memorial site. The intended recipients of the compensation included all torture survivors who have a credible claim of, quote, torture or physical abuse at the hands of John Burge or his subordinates between May 1, 1972 and November 30, 1991. Intended recipients also included immediate family members of victims and, in some cases, their grandchildren. As of 2021, the only portion of the ordinance remaining unfulfilled is the memorial. While the memorial has still not been built, individuals at the Chicago Torture Justice Memorial continue meeting with the mayor and remain hopeful the process will start soon, though the city's ordinance and resolution did not specify a timeline or specific funding for the memorial. Evanston, Illinois the City of Evanston passed the Restorative Housing Program in March 2021 to redress the City's discriminatory practices in housing, zoning, and lending that created a wealth and opportunity gap between white and African-American Evanstonians. Before enacting the program, the City Council's Reparations Subcommittee had commissioned a report entitled Evanston Policies and Practices Directly Affecting the African-American Community 1900 to 1960 and present. According to the report, quote, the city of Evanston officially supported and enabled the practice of segregation with specific actions, such as passing a zoning ordinance in 1921 that implicitly condoned race-based housing segregation, the demolition of homes owned by African-American families for economic development on the grounds that they were, quote, unsanitary or, quote, overcrowded, providing permits to Northwestern University to develop temporary segregated housing for veterans after World War II, segregating other post-World War II temporary housing for veterans, and failing until the late 1960s to enact a fair housing ordinance to outlaw housing discrimination. Under the city's restorative housing program, African-American Evanstonians, their descendants, or other residents who experience housing discrimination by the city of Evanston are provided $25,000 to either purchase a home, conduct home improvements, or pay down their existing mortgage. The restorative housing program was the first such repair program enacted by the city, but Evanston has also studied its discriminatory past, creating an equity and empowerment commission, created a city's reparation fund, honored local historical African-American sites, and issued an apology. The restorative housing program aimed to increase African-American home ownership in order to revitalize and preserve African-American owner-occupied homes in Evanston. 
To be eligible, the home must be located in Evanston and be the applicant's primary residence. The program will eventually extend funds to all intended recipients. Evanston residents of African-American ancestry who are at least 18 years old and in order of priority either 1. An ancestor, a resident who lived in Evanston between 1919 and 1969, was at least 18 years old at the time and experienced housing discrimination due to the city's policies or practices. 2. A direct descendant of an ancestor, for example, child, grandchild, great-grandchild, or 3. A resident who does not qualify as an ancestor or direct descendant, but experienced housing discrimination due to a city ordinance, policy, or practice after 1969. At the close of the first round of applications, 122 ancestor applicants were verified by the city and 16 were randomly selected in January 2022 via the city's lottery to receive the first round of payments. In March 2023, Evanston voted to expand the form of compensation to include direct cash payments and announced plans to disperse 35 to 80 additional grants. In November 2022, the City Council passed a resolution to dedicate up to $1 million annually to the City Reparations Fund for a period of 10 years, taken from the graduated real estate transfer tax collected from all property purchased above a price of $1.5 million. More funding came in December 2022 when the City Council passed Resolution 125R22 to transfer $2 million from the City's General Fund to the Reparations Fund. Evanston Mayor Daniel Biss launched a survey to assess Evanston's residents' views on the reparations program on February 16, 2023. Asheville, North Carolina In June 2021, the City Council of Asheville, North Carolina voted to allocate $2.1 million of the city's proceeds from the sale of city-owned land to support a reparations commission. A portion of this land had been purchased by the city in the 1970s through urban renewal, a policy that, quote, resulted in the displacement of vibrant black communities and the removal of black residents and homeowners, many into substandard public housing. The city anticipates that of the $2.1 million, $200,000 will fund the Reparation Commission's planning and engagement process, leaving approximately $1.9 million in initial funding for compensation. The City's Reparation Commission is working on a report that is scheduled to be completed by October 31, 2023. The Commission is required to consider ways to make amends for the City's participation in and sanctioning of the enslavement of African Americans, its enforcement of segregation and accompanying discriminatory practices, its implementation of an urban renewal program that destroyed multiple successful African American communities, and many other actions it took inflicting harms upon African Americans living in Asheville. The Commission is charged with making short, medium, and long-term recommendations to make significant progress towards repairing the damage caused by public and private systemic racism so that the City of Asheville and local community groups may incorporate these recommendations into their short and long-term priorities and plans. The resolution states that the report and the resulting budgetary and programmatic priorities may include, but not be limited to, increasing minority home ownership and access to other affordable housing, increasing minority business ownership and career opportunities, strategies to grow equity and generational wealth, closing the gaps in health care education, employment, and pay, neighborhood safety, and fairness within criminal justice.
Providence, Rhode Island. After the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police in May 2020, the mayor of Providence, Rhode Island, signed an executive order to launch a truth-telling reconciliation and restitution process to, quote, eradicate bias and racism against its African-American and indigenous residents and other people of color. Following that three-part process, the city issued a formal apology and enacted a 2023 city budget that includes $10 million earmarked for programs recommended by the city's Municipal Reparations Commission, but does not include direct cash payments to descendants. Beginning with a truth-telling phase, the Rhode Island Black Heritage Society collaborated with city and state historical institutions to publish a 200-page report, A Matter of Truth, The Struggle for African Heritage and Indigenous People Equal Rights in Providence, Rhode Island, 1620 to 2020. The report documents the history of harm that Providence sought to remedy, including the lasting wounds caused by slavery, the genocide of Indigenous people, and the ongoing racial discrimination from 1620 to 2020 throughout the city of Providence and the state of Rhode Island. In the reconciliation phase, the Providence Cultural Equity Initiative and Roger Williams University published a report detailing their efforts to survey Providence community members, develop guiding principles for reparations, and develop a model and proof of concept to continue reconciliation in perpetuity, including through a multimedia initiative. For its guiding principles on reconciliation, the Reconciliation Report noted the need for ongoing communal learning, a focus on particular people and places, and the importance of efforts to cross barriers of identity and empathy. The city's reconciliation principles also rejected depictions of participants that reduced them to racialized categories or tropes, while celebrating resilience both past and present. Finally, Providence's reconciliation principles underscored action, emphasizing a community-owned but institutionally supported process, and the principle that reconciliation cannot be accomplished without reparations. With regard to the third and final phase, reparations, the mayor's 2022 executive order created the Municipal Reparations Commission, consisting of 13 members from the local community. The commission held over a dozen public meetings discussing the justifications for reparations and the form they might take. In November 2022, Jorge Alorza, the mayor of Providence signed a city budget allocating $10 million provided to the city from the American Rescue Plan Act to fund programs across seven of the commission's recommendations. The mayor also issued an executive order recognizing and apologizing for the city's role in discriminating against African heritage and indigenous people. And that concludes part two of the executive summary of the California Reparations Report. And that'll wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. And in a future episode, we will cover this report's recommendations uh, and proposed legislation. If you want to check out all the back episodes, including the prior episode, which was part one of the executive summary, uh, just go to youcantbeneutral.com find all the back episodes there you find a link to make a donation you'll find a link to send me a message and you can uh, follow me on twitter at ycb neutral 